Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for letting us into your space today. We really appreciate being a part of your day. We want to let you know that we have a lot going on here at Christ Community. So if you have an interest in checking us out, go ahead and go on our website and check out our coming up page. And we also have a groups page. If you're interested in getting connected that way, we encourage you to check that out. Also, please like and subscribe our page on YouTube so that when more content comes out, you know about it. We hope you enjoy the message. Hello again. It's good to see you. Yeah. Um, I want to start by being really vulnerable about something. Uh, This sermon, for whatever reason, was really difficult to put together. Uh, Last weekend when Pastor Allen was talking about how we chose 1 Corinthians because it would be challenging for us as a church for a series to go through, I had no idea how challenging it would be to preach on. And so here's kind of the difference that's making at least for me. Normally when I come up here, I don't like to use notes um, because I like to be fully here. I like it to feel like it's just you and me and we're together and we're having a conversation with each other. It's, I really want it to feel like what I share is coming from here. Um, But for whatever reason, how, why this was so difficult to put together, it's been hard for me to keep my thoughts in the correct order and, and say what I really want to say. So I have notes up here with me today, which I'm not used to. And here's the only reason why I wanted to bring that up. It's not to draw attention to it or, or to me. That's not the point at all. It's just when I come up here, it is really important to me that you guys know where this is coming from. It's coming from here. So since I haven't really done this before, if at any point this feels like scripted or rehearsed or something like that, I just want you to know where this is coming from. (laughs) This is coming from here. Okay, thank you for letting me get that off of my chest. We can put that aside. It's not the point at all. Um, When I was a kid and I came home from school, usually the first thing uh, that I would do is I would drop my backpack down and I would go downstairs and turn on the TV. And growing up, we didn't have cable, so there were limited options. Usually, it was the choice between Arthur or Judge Judy. And uh, since I was just a kid, it was an easy decision. It was Judge Judy, like, all the time. So much Judge Judy. I watched a ton of Judge Judy. If you're unfamiliar with the show, there is a judge. Her name is Judy. Surprise. And um, they're, on the show, there are two people, usually, and they both kind of share their side of a disagreement that they're having. And Judge Judy listens, and she asks questions, and then she makes a determination of who's right and who's wrong, who's guilty, who's not, and uh, tells one person to pay X amount of money to the other person. And whatever she says is final. Somehow, terrifyingly, this is a legal court of law. And whatever she says is binding. Um, And at the end of each case, there's these follow-up interviews where they interview both people. And it's usually one of two scenarios. Uh, Scenario one is one person is really happy with the outcome. They got what they wanted. And the other person is really angry about the outcome. Or the other scenario is both people are really angry with the outcome. Neither of them got what they wanted. Uh, Which isn't that big of a surprise, except I learned something about the show Judge Judy that kind of made me go, huh. 
If you get invited onto the show, actually, I don't think it's running anymore. So if you did get invited onto the show, all of your travel expenses, they got paid. And if you are found guilty and Judy says you owe the other person money, you don't have to pay a dime because the show pays all the money for you. Now, you would think that if someone got an all-expense-paid trip and if they were found guilty, their legal expenses or what their punishment was covered, they wouldn't be that upset if they were found guilty. But they are, which kind of exposes something. Like, why is someone so angry, even though they don't have to give whatever she says that they owe? It seems like it makes something deeper than the money even worse, which exposes something. When we are accused of something, it's kind of a jarring experience, if you've ever experienced that before. When someone accuses you of something, it feels like a statement is being made, not just about what you did, but about who you are. It feels personal. How many of us have been accused of something, and even though we know we didn't do it, it still bothers us? Like the accusation alone eats away at us. How many of us have hurt another person, and no matter how sincerely we apologize, no matter what we do to try to make it right, they still can't let it go? How many of us have had someone hurt us, And no matter how sincerely they have apologized, no matter what they have done to try to make it right, we still can't let it go. What's getting in the way there? Why isn't this working? We are in this series where we are looking at a letter that Paul wrote to a church of Christians in the ancient city of Corinth. And the last time I spoke, I said in Corinth, there was kind of this constant TED Talk competition going on. Well, it seems as though Corinth was on the cusp of modern-day entertainment because there was a constant Judge Judy situation going on, too. In Corinth, if two people had a disagreement with each other that they couldn't resolve themselves, there was a public judge that you could go to. So you and the other person, you you would wait in line, and when it was your turn, you both would kind of describe your sides of the disagreement And the judge would listen and ask questions. And just like Judge Judy, they would decide for you who was right and who was wrong and how much money you owed the other person. And that was that. Like, it was a legal court of law. And what was happening in this church in Corinth is among these Christians, just within the church itself, there was all these little disagreements. But instead of resolving them, They were dragging each other to this court to stand in front of this judge and publicly shame and condemn and accuse and label another person and demand that they get paid back what they were owed. And so because this was happening within this church, Paul writes this to them. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, 5, and 6. And he said, if any of you has a dispute with another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Has a neighbor ever reported you to the HOA? 
Makes you feel really neighborly, doesn't it? Now you're wondering, it's like, man, who ratted me out? Like, who cares about my dumpster that much? I'll bring it inside. It, it doesn't really do much for the community. Have you ever reported someone to the HOA? Don't raise your hand. Bad idea. That's kind of what was constantly going on in this church. Not the community, but the church itself. So it'll come as no surprise to you that this was tearing apart the community of the church. And it was resolving nothing. By going about it this way, yeah, maybe they were getting back what they felt they deserved. Maybe they felt like justice was being done. But the damage happening to the relationships within the church was huge because they were going about it this way. The core issue that Paul is upset about here and what he's writing in this letter isn't that they're taking each other to court. It's that they're taking each other to court to judge and condemn and label each other. When you judge and condemn someone, you are not just saying something about what they did. You are saying something about who they are defined by what they did. You stole, so you are a thief. You lied, so you are a liar. When you judge and condemn, it's like you're putting a, a label of identity on somebody. And this passage is easy to write off because within our church, we're not constantly suing each other. We're not taking each other to court. But the core of this is something that people do all the time. If When someone hurts us, maybe we just decide who they are and we view them differently. Now they're untrustworthy. They are manipulative. They are selfish. This is who they are now. Or maybe a bit like the Corinthians, we do this in front of others. Maybe we call someone out online, making the internet our courtroom and everyone reading our judge. Or maybe we hold a secret trial that we don't invite them to, and we talk to our friend about what someone else did to us. And we paint that person in a bad light and we give our side of the story so that our friend, the judge, can make a ruling that we are hoping for, that we are innocent and they are guilty and we are the victim. And now our friend views this person differently. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end. Maybe you know what it feels like to be accused of something. You know what it's like for a statement to be made about you that's not just about something that you did, but someone has told you who you are because of what you did. It feels pretty terrible to be judged, doesn't it? If you spent enough time in this church or another good church, you should have heard by now that we don't judge and condemn each other. That's just not what we do. The Bible has tons of verses that back that up. And I could show you a whole bunch, but there's one that stands out to me above all the rest. And it's John 3, 16 through 18. It goes like this. The first part will probably sound familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. So in that verse, 
The Greek word for condemn is the exact same Greek word used in the passage we're looking at for judge. They are the same thing. Jesus did not come to judge and condemn. So we don't either. To label and condemn and judge people for their mistakes is the opposite of what Jesus came here to do. When my wife and I were first married, we moved into this basement uh, apartment of a house just a couple blocks that way. And the ceilings were really low. They were like this high. I had to walk around light fixtures. Um, uh, But the ceilings weren't just low, they were thin. And there was this married couple that moved in upstairs, and we quickly learned that they fought a lot. And you could hear every word. It's like we were in the next room. And over time, it got worse, and the names got more awful, and it got really, really nasty. There was one day where my wife and I, we went on a walk around the block. And when we came back to the house, uh, this couple was sitting on the front steps. And they looked kind of bummed out, so we asked how they were doing. And the wife told us that her husband had just recently confessed to her that he had been struggling with an opioid addiction. He had a surgery a while back and was prescribed some pain medications, and his brain just didn't want to let go. And this has been a huge source behind a lot of the fighting, and she didn't know what was going on, and this this was it. Uh, They knew that I was a pastor, and so she asked if I would speak to him, which is so weird when someone asked me to speak to someone who doesn't want me to speak to them. It's so weird. And they're right there. It's so weird. Um, But he seemed okay with it. And so my wife went inside and she, his wife went inside. And so I sat down next to him and uh, we were talking a little bit about what was going on. It was kind of awkward. And he mentioned that his in-laws, his wife's parents had bought him a Bible and he sheepishly showed it to me. And when I saw it, I could not believe what I saw. On the cover of the Bible, it didn't say NIV or the Holy Bible. In really big letters, it said the Addicts Bible. And just beneath it in gold leaf, they had engraved his name on it. I get the heart behind crafting a Bible for someone that like highlights verses that help with someone who's struggling with addiction. But I wish they wouldn't have called it the Addicts Bible, as if that is who they are, and that's who they're always going to be let alone to engrave someone's name on that. It made me so mad. I wanted to rip the cover off of that Bible and burn it because the message of the cover of his Bible was so opposite to the message of the Bible inside of it. I tried to explain to my neighbor that the message of Jesus is that we are forgiven We are set free. We are no longer defined by our mistakes. We are being made new. Yeah, he has a lot of work to do to recover, but that is not who he is. I was instantly repulsed by the message of the cover of his Bible because it was so opposite to what was inside of it. In the last verse of the passage in Corinthians we're looking at today, Paul speaks to what that message is. This is verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because of what Jesus did to rescue us, we are no longer defined and labeled and condemned for our mistakes. So we don't judge and condemn or label people either. That's not what Jesus came to do. But that's what makes the next couple verses of Paul's letter so confusing. Check this out. This is wild. This is verse two and three. He says, or do you not know that the Lord's people, that's us, will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? All right. These two verses stir up a whole bunch of questions. We're going to judge the world? We're going to judge angels? What did they do wrong? Like, do we get a gavel and robe? Like, what is this going to look like? What is he talking about here? I spent a really, really long time trying to figure this out, and I don't think I did. I'm not sure I fully understand what Paul is talking about. I have guesses, but I'm pretty sure I know what he's not saying. I don't think for a second this means that we get to define what is right and what is wrong. We don't get to decide who is in and who is out. We don't get to label people and judge and condemn people for their mistakes. That doesn't feel like Jesus at all. In other words, we don't get to go around passing out Bibles that label people by their struggle and engrave their name on it. That's not who we are. That can't be what this is about. But the clearest way I think I can describe what I think he's getting at is he's pointing out that Jesus is preparing us to be a part of something bigger. Jesus is teaching us his perspective. He's teaching us how he sees things. He's teaching us how he sees people. He's showing us how to become more like him. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's setting us apart to be this light of hope for everyone around us. But in contrast to that, this church in Corinth, the people within it are dragging each other to court to publicly shame and condemn and label each other. So you can understand why Paul is so upset with that contrast of what should be and what is happening. Now, it's important to understand, Paul is talking specifically to Christians here. And it seems like he's saying that Jesus is preparing us for something bigger, And if we have any hope of being ready for whatever that is, we need to know how to resolve conflict. And if we have any hope of learning from Jesus how to resolve conflict, we need to learn how to see each other like Jesus sees us. Which again, verse 11 points to how Jesus sees us. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In another letter, Paul says it this way. You are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In other words, your mistakes are not who you are. Jesus sees something bigger than that in you. And he's doing something bigger than that in you. And the Christian who hurt you, their mistakes are not who they are. Jesus sees something bigger than that in them. And he's doing something bigger than that in them. 
When my wife and I, we moved into the house that we're living in now years ago, uh, there was this weird bush in our front yard. Uh, we called it the alien bush. I think we have a picture maybe. Yeah, it's like... We call it the alien bush because it looks like these long, like aggressively straight fingers, like sticking out of the ground. It's like, what is this? And when we looked closer at it at the base, we saw this uh, stump and we realized that this used to be a tree. I guess the old owners of the house, it, it died and they cut it down. And these weird, aggressively straight fingers are what was left of this tree that had died. Uh, we thought about cutting these weird branches down and digging out the stump, but we thought, mm, it's better than nothing. We'll just let it do its thing. And so it grew a little bit to the point where I asked my arborist friend, is arborist a word? Is that, yeah? I'm seeing enough nods to confirm arborist is a word. Whether it is or not, we have the nod majority. Uh, my arborist friend is like, hey, does this have any chance of becoming something? And he said, no, it's going to be too weak. You should just cut it down and dig it out. So my, the, the old owners, they called it dead, and we called it a bush, and uh, my friend called it hopeless. Here's the alien bush now. Yeah, it's a tree. Uh, it always has been a tree. And man, your reaction to that just made me so emotional. Ugh. Okay, oh, I don't know why. What's really cool is I was going to take a picture of the stump at the base between all those trunks. It's not there anymore. For my tree, literally, the old is gone and the new has come. Here's my point. When Jesus sees you, he doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see a, a stump. He sees a tree. He sees a new creation. When we are in conflict with a fellow Christian, it can be really difficult to see the tree that Jesus says that they are. But in conflict, it's crucial that we do because we see that we can't define this person by their mistakes because Jesus has already definitively said who they are. They are washed. They are sanctified. They are justified. They are a new creation. Jesus doesn't judge and condemn us for our mistakes. He sees something bigger than that, and he's doing something bigger than that, and he's preparing us for that. So when we are in conflict with another Christian, he wants us to learn how to see that person like he sees them as something bigger than that. But in conflict, when we see who Jesus says they are, it also reveals who they are to us. When another Christian hurts us, it's difficult to see past what they've done. But when we stop and remember who Jesus says that they are, it begins to reveal who they are to us. Through this passage, Paul is reminding us who the other person is in this conflict. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. He said, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. When someone is in Christ, they aren't just washed, 
or sanctified or justified or a new creation. They are your brother. They are your sister. When another Christian hurts us and we remember who Jesus says they are, we also remember who they are to us, our brother, our sister. And when we recognize who they are to us, it changes how we respond to conflict. When we see that they are our brother and our sister, it stops being about proving the other person wrong and proving ourselves right. It stops being about getting even, getting back what we deserve. When we see who they are, we realize that a brother and sister have been torn apart and they need to come back together. When we recognize who the other person is, it changes how we respond to conflict. There's something about the grocery store that brings out this really immature, mischievous side of me. Um, for example, there was this one day where I was shopping at King Supers and I was walking through the aisle and I recognized uh, the person uh, in the aisle as a friend of mine. And they were walking away from me, so I decided to walk behind them as close as I possibly could without touching them. And I was like an inch uh, away from them and just enough where they could sense it and you could see their shoulders kind of like tense up and after about 10 feet of this, he had had enough and he turned around with this look of anger and concern and a clenched fist and he said, excuse me. And as soon as he recognized who I was, he started laughing. Another time, same thing, but a lot more extreme. Uh, I, I was in my car leaving the parking lot of King Supers, and as I was going through one of the parking lot lanes, I recognized the person pushing the car in front of me. And so same thing, I drove my car as close behind them. I would not do this to very many people, okay? I, I know this is kind of aggressive. I, again, inches, like they could feel the air of the fan of my engine. And again, you could see their shoulders tense up and their pace quickened. And uh, when they got to, when she got to her car, she turned around and she gave me the dirtiest look I have ever received in my life. And she's a teacher, so she's really good at that. It like struck me to my soul. But again, as soon as she recognized who I was, she started laughing. If you got in a car accident and someone rear-ended you and you both got out of the car and you realized that the other driver was your best friend, that would change how you responded to that, wouldn't it? Like if it was just somebody you didn't know, all we would care about is getting our car fixed and insurance coming through and getting the money for it and everything being fair and that it was their fault and not our fault. Uh, but... When you realize that it's your best friend, that would change how you navigated that situation because you would realize there's something far more important than the car at stake here. Like this could make or break your friendship just depending on how you responded to this. And is that worth it? There have been a couple of times in my life where some really close friends of mine, I, have, I misinterpreted their, their words and their actions. And in those moments, it really felt like that they were truly against me. 
and this idea just got stuck in my head and I got angry and I got frustrated. And there was one time where I texted one of my friends in this situation and I accused them of all these motivations that I believed that they had. And as soon as I hit send, immediately it felt like Jesus said, don't you know who they are? And this wave of just like, oh my gosh, this is my brother. And immediately I sent a follow-up text apologizing. As soon as that realization hit, the goal of the conflict changed. It wasn't about what started it anymore. Now it was about apologizing and repairing the damage done to the relationship between me and my brother. Jesus, he doesn't judge and condemn us for our mistakes. He sees something bigger than that. And he's doing something bigger than that. And he's inviting us and preparing us to be a part of that. So when we are in conflict with another Christian, he wants us to see who he says they are, which reminds us of who they are to us, our brother, our sister. And this changes the way that we resolve conflict. There's another really big reason why we don't judge and condemn each other. It doesn't work. Like, look at verse 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. If someone hurts us and we condemn them for it, does that actually fix anything? There have been so many high-profile public trials lately. I can't think of one that fixed anything. I know that it feels like justice when, when we call someone out and prove them to be wrong and mark them as guilty and expose who they are and we get back what we deserve and we prove that we're right. But in those situations, after someone has been treated in that way and those things have been said to that person, does that ever end with them saying, you know what, you were right. Let's go back to the way things were. Condemning doesn't work. It just does more harm. Paul is saying you already lost something by being wronged by the other person, but you lose even more by condemning them. You lose your brother. You lose your sister. Condemning doesn't work. It just does more harm. But luckily, like we touched on last week, Jesus has laid out a different way of resolving conflict. And it starts by recognizing who Jesus says that they are and remembering who they are to us. It's in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. It goes like this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So if a brother or sister in Christ hurts you in some way, don't publicly shame them or condemn them or accuse them. Talk to them. Tell them how you're feeling. Explain your side and what you experienced. Don't shame them. 
And if they listen to you, you've gained your brother or sister back. If they don't listen, bring in a couple witnesses, if there were witnesses. Witnesses are not close friends of yours that will back you up. These are people that like, are actually a part of the situation. And if they listen to these other people, you've won your brother and sister back. If they don't listen, bring in a mediator from the church, an impartial, unbiased person who can kind of sort out what has probably become really complicated at this point. And if from that conversation, it becomes clear that they really did hurt you and they listen, you've won your brother and sister back. But if they don't listen, it seems like there's not much more that you can do. Now to that last scenario, the wording is kind of intense. In the heart of what we talked about last week, I don't for a second think that this is saying we're permanently cutting anybody off. That, again, that doesn't feel like Jesus to me. I really think what this is saying here is at this point, after going through all these steps, there's not much more that can be done. But we hope and we pray that there's a time in the future where this person will be in a place where they're able to listen and then that relationship can be restored and you can get your brother and your sister back. But I want to point out a couple really important things about Jesus's instructions here. The first one is two words that don't show up ever, even in the last scenario, are judge and condemn. That's not the goal here. It doesn't work. Instead, the goal throughout this whole thing is to repair the relationship that was damaged between a brother and a sister. Condemning, judging, labeling, defining someone for how they've hurt you, it doesn't work. But how big of an impact has the love and grace and forgiveness and patience of Jesus had on your life? How has your life changed and how have you grown because Jesus didn't come here to condemn you, but to rescue you? Judging, condemning, defining, it doesn't do much good. But when you look at how Jesus responded to you, does love work? Verse 11, again, reminds us of the impact it's had on our life because Jesus didn't come to condemn us. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or in other words, in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. There are times where I can relate to the tree in my front yard. There are times where I feel like a bit of a stump with these weird gangly branches sticking out. But throughout my life, Jesus has over and over constantly told me who he says that I am. You're a tree, you're a tree, you're a tree, you're a tree. And over time, with the gardener's help, I am slowly becoming who he says that I am. Maybe this sounds silly, but the tree in my front yard, it feels like it's been a friend this summer. It's given us shade from the sun. It's given us privacy from our neighbors across the street. It's been a home for birds that we hear more loudly through our window. We can hear rain louder. We can hear the wind through the leaves. And if I had judged and condemned my tree as dead because of the stump, I would have lost something. Guys, we can't cut each other down. 
we lose too much. In a way, in this passage, Paul is saying, why are you cutting each other down? Why are you labeling each other for what you're not? Hasn't the gardener already told you who you are? You're a tree. And so is the one who hurt you. And he's preparing us for something bigger than this. So we can't cut each other down. We need to help each other grow. We need to remind each other of who Jesus says we are. We are trees of the same garden. And we can't afford to lose each other. Jesus doesn't judge and condemn us for our mistakes. He sees something bigger than that in you. And he's doing something bigger than that in you. And he's, in, he's preparing us to be a part of whatever bigger thing that is. So we are learning to see each other like Jesus does. Washed, sanctified, justified, a new creation, brothers, sisters. So when conflict arises, instead of cutting each other down, we help each other grow. We remind each other who Jesus says that we are, and we heal the damage done between a brother and a sister. If you're able to, would you stand with me so we can pray together? So as we begin to pray together, instead of jumping in and saying a whole bunch of things to God or asking him questions and listening for his response. Before we do that, we want to intentionally open up just a couple minutes for God to speak to us however he wants to, for him to do whatever he wants to do before we grab a hold of the wheel and kind of steer things in the direction we think they need to go. So the way we've been doing that the past uh, few months is we just have this posture of listening and we pray this really ancient prayer that has been prayed a very long time. It's just, Holy Spirit, would you please come? So let's just, in this posture of prayer, as best as we can, open ourselves up and listen. And I'll pray this on behalf of all of us. Holy Spirit, would you please come? Maybe some of you here have been accused of something, but it feels like you've been accused of being something. Maybe there are people in your life who have labeled you or condemned you because of something you've done or just a misperception of who you are. 
Or maybe we do this to ourselves. I know I do. So I think it would be really good for us to ask Jesus a question and to listen to his response. So I'll I'll pray this on behalf of all of us. Jesus, when you look at me, what do you see? Who do you say that I am? And just listen to see how he responds. Maybe everything that we've been talking about has brought to mind someone that you have been judging, someone you have been condemning, someone you've labeled for their mistakes. So I think it'd be good if we have someone in mind right now to also ask Jesus this. Jesus, when you see that person, what do you see? Who do you say that they are? And just listen to how he responds. We're going to continue to respond uh, through worship. But while we do, if you need to just keep sitting with these questions and listening, that's okay. You can, you can keep doing that. Um, also, members of our prayer team are going to be up here. And if you'd like someone to pray into whatever God is doing in your life, they would love to do that. They're not going to ask you what they can pray for. All they want to do is just come alongside you in the good things that God is doing in your life. And if they have something they want to share with you, maybe they'll share that with you too. But they really, they just want to pray for you. Um, So, Father, thank you that you didn't come to condemn us, but you came to rescue us. How lucky are we? Thank you for teaching us who you say that we are, for affirming the new creation that you say is inside of us and bringing that forth. We have so much to be grateful for and so much to be thankful for. Help that to move into the way that we treat others, the way that we see others. So Father, it's with these incredible things in mind that we worship you now. Well, hey, coming out of that message, we know that God has been moving in your heart. He's been stirring. And there's probably some of you there who are like, I could just use somebody to talk to. 
uh, we want to let you know that we actually have people available to connect with you, no matter the time of day, no matter even the week, right? You mm-hmm. could be watching this like a month later. Um, if you head to our website, cccgreeley.org, there's a little button there that you can click that says connect with us or chat with us. Mm-hmm. And when you click that, you can write whatever you want. And within minutes, literally, one of our pastoral staff will be reaching back out to you. And so if you're in a place right now where you need that, we just encourage you to reach out connect with us. We would love to walk with you on your journey. Um, But friends, we are so glad you joined us today. We hope that God was doing amazing things in your heart. Hope you have a great week.